Sit down and buckle up. It's time for the Pirate Monk Podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Pirate Monk Podcast. Yes, we're coming to you practically live. Uh, face to face for fa- the first time in forever. In for freaking ever. Yeah, this is <laughs> awesome. Yeah. Uh, sitting uh, across the table from each other here on a spring afternoon in beautiful Franklin, Tennessee. And, and we're, we're socially distanced right now. Uh-huh. Yeah, it's a pretty big table. Yeah. However, I, I, the, the, I am less and less feeling the need to distance. Now that I'm bulletproof, I've had both shots of the uh, of the vaccine. Uh, that just feels like such a dangerous thing to say. <laughs> I'll tell you what, I flew for the first time in quite a while this last weekend, made a trip up to Northern Virginia. Uh, the last time I flew on Southwest, uh, they were not put seating people in the center seat, which is great. You got either a window yeah. or an aisle. Those days are over, baby. I mean, the the... Airport was packed. The planes were packed. But I was comfortable. Yeah. That's good. The first time I flew was last summer, still in the middle of stuff. And Uh it was so locked down in the airport and so careful. Then you get in the plane, and it was all the way full. Uh They were still giving out beverages. (laughs) So people are taking off their masks while they're drinking. Yeah. And like, I, I don't care. Just pick a pick a road. But clearly, this is... I mean, it was just, I was sitting there shaking my head going, I, I don't understand. Yeah, yeah, Like, yeah. I, I understand all the different points of views, but I don't understand how any of this makes sense. Mm. Mm. So, anyway, sounds like it it's going to be like that when I next fly at some point. Yeah. I missed out on the half-full airplanes. <laughs> <laughs> I But I also learned since last time my daughter... We didn't talk about her going to California, right? Yeah. Uh, and and me completely misunderstanding how, you know, she was supposed to have an escort. And I thought that meant somebody's going to come up to the ticket counter and get her. And I will wave goodbye and they'll make sure she gets to each yeah. like uh-huh. point. I had no idea that I was going to have to take her to the gate and wait for the plane Oh, wow. To, like, arrive and for her to board. Yeah. So, basically, I had to do the crappiest part of traveling, getting through security at an international airport. (laughs) Then I had to sit at the gate for a couple hours. Yeah. And then when the plane comes, at that point, they usually feel like, I'm about to leave. Here we go. I stood up and walked back to my damn car. Yeah. (laughs) This is such a tease. Yeah. So, you just got back from a trip, a non-flying trip. Non-flying trip, yep. Road trip, close enough to drive. Allie and I went to uh, the, the mountains of North Georgia. It's gorgeous up there. Uh, our son, our youngest son, Daniel, asked us to come because uh, he's going to run a, a, a trail race, a 57.4-mile trail race through the mountains with 10,000 feet of climb. Wow. Yeah. Um, so how long does that take? 50 miles, 10,000 feet. 16 hours is what they, he planned. Wow. But, uh, yeah, I mean, he, he wussed out. He only made 35 miles. And then his <laughs> – he didn't wuss out at all. He, he said he felt, he felt fine. He was breathing well. But his IT band 
on, on the right leg just seized up on him and he just couldn't walk anymore. By that point, he had already waded through waist-deep streams, crawled under fallen trees. He'd climbed over 6,000 feet and was on track to make, to you know, to finish in 16 hours. Wow. That's, that's, that's insane. It's hard to believe that that boy is my son because I don't know where that persistence comes from. Oh, and desire to put him in persistence's way. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, if you just don't show up, you never have to persist through that. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, he, he seems to embrace the pain. Uh, you know, and I, it's, I mean, I'm, I so admire it. I really do. Um, I feel in some ways, uh, you know, recovery is a bit of a long distance race. It's kind of, it mm-hmm. has its own challenges and you got to stick to it. And things seize up. Y- they do. Or, occasionally. You, or you seize things you're not supposed to. <laughs> <laughs> oh, low hanging fruit. Yes, totally is. It's, a, it's a, anybody that wants the silver bullet version of recovery is just going to be disappointed because mm-hmm. it's a long distance race full of streams and fallen logs. Yeah, yeah. And more than that, uh, other people running the race that need to be picked up and carried for a while. Isn't that true? Yeah. And, you know, one of the reasons that Daniel does, he didn't run that race alone. Uh, two of his friends, including Newton, who's, who's been a part of our podcast team in the past, mm-hmm. uh, Newton uh, drove down to uh, and you know, brought his wife and son and brand new pop-up camper. It was really nice. And another buddy uh, from Florida uh, met there, and he, he did it as much for the companionship mm-hmm. as for the you know the private personal challenge. I actually I love that about Daniel. We'll just we'll just talk about Daniel today. This is the <laughs> Daniel segment. He creates a tradition with his friends, yeah, with yeah. his boys, yeah, 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 things that they do every year. Mm-hmm. And they're extreme, but they're hospitable. I mean, I'd love how they do that whole go on the trail. What's that trail called? Through the Appalachian Trail, right? Yeah. And that they cook for other people, but they sink beer. What like a year <laughs> in advance? Like it's waiting for them there. Yeah, yeah. Most heartbreaking story is that time that they get there and their <laughs> beer's been found and stolen. That's, yeah, yeah, yeah. But just just those weird little traditions that aren't hard to do. Well, it makes me um, think of Andy's story at the retreat about right. him giving the high five. It doesn't have to be crazy. It, By the way, did you see that that made the CBS yeah, show? I did. It made it onto television, yeah. Yeah. So anybody can start those things, and yeah. they can be as lavish. I mean, Daniel goes way over the top, mm-hmm. and I think that satisfies his soul. I think yeah. there are some people that are the planners of those things. Yeah. But there's also the simple things that mm. can just be a part of a meeting after a meeting that yeah. becomes tradition and becomes special, and those things fill our hearts. Yeah. Because clearly, God did all kinds of regular traditions. Like, we're going to establish traditions, people, and we're going to do it every year, and we're going to do it throughout the year, these different things. I think we're wired for that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's been one of the tough challenges of the pandemic is that so many of our regular traditions have been interrupted. And I look forward uh, to get, to getting back on track with them. 
Hey, we got a great guest this week, uh, a fellow I was recently introduced to. I'm thrilled to learn about this new trauma-based uh, addiction treatment program, intensive, you know, uh, short-term, affordable in the uh, larger scheme of things, and uh, and Christian from a great uh, brother believer. You're gonna want to. You're gonna want to hear Matt. Hang on. We'll be back in a moment on the Pirate Monk podcast. Welcome back to the Pirate Monk Podcast, and we are privileged to have with us as our guest this week, uh, Matt Wenger, who is the director of Boulder Recovery in Boulder, Colorado. Uh, Welcome to the show, Matt. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm really excited. Yeah. Well, uh, Mm -hmm. I've been hearing great things about your program, your vision for the program. Uh, This is born out of experience in another program. Uh, Tell us a little bit about how the program that you're overseeing has come to be. Yeah. So I've been... um I've been working as a therapist and clinical director with Begin Again Institute, uh, which has been around, I don't know, since maybe 2008, mm-hmm. um, doing trauma-based recovery in these two-week intensive uh, formats. So, um, you know, neurological-based, uh, trauma-based treatment for guys uh, suffering from you know, sex and porn addiction and um, support for their, their partners. And as I was working in that program, um, we were seeing about half of the guys that were coming through our program in any given kind of cohort, you know, guys come in on all at the same time and they leave all at the same time, um, were Christian men. And, you know, growing up in the church myself and, and being within that community, this was not a shock to me, but mm-hmm. it was surprising to some of the people that I was working with that. I mean, there's this a huge portion of our client population is is Christian men. What's going on here, you know? And from growing up in the church, I man, that was like the whole thing. And in, in, in youth group was, you know, you know, did you do this this week, or did you have a good day or a bad day, or how many times, you know? And just like little accountability groups in high school, and yeah, you know, books, and I mean, that was just inundated in the culture. And I think. Part of that was there's some fear around sexuality, I think, in the church. And then part of it is, you know, that seems like a really bad thing, I guess, for kids to be doing. But either way, it was it was uh, pervasive. It was ubiquitous within the church. And even as I grew older, that, you know, guys were continuing to struggle with it into their marriages. Yeah. And so I w- it was not news to me that the church was struggling with this with this issue broadly. Um so when the opportunity came to me and they said, you know, Matt, we want your help to to build out this program, you know, I didn't really want to do it because, you know, I, I already was working as the clinical director for Begin Again and I'm like, one job is enough. I think I, 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 think I can do one <laughs> job at a time. But my wife was like, Matt, you, you got to do this. You know, this is, you know, I, I had a... Uh, biblical training at Moody Bible Institute. I, you know, I wanted to be a pastor when I was younger and um, got into therapy through a different, you know, side door. 
Yeah. And uh, she's like, you're, you got to do this. This is, she really feels like something that, what that made, God has for you. What and, made her passionate about that? I mean, it, it seems unusual that the wife is like, yes, go down the, the porn path. I mean, not exactly the porn path. That's, that's a different path altogether. <laughs> porn path. But, this is the anti-porn path. Yeah. yeah so uh, the porn path, but against yeah. it. So what, what kind of lit her up and thinking, no, this is, this is for my husband. <laughs> yeah, that's a that's a funny question. You know, I I don't have that addiction personally in my background. Um, I, you know, I relate to the guys in terms of um, kind of attachment issues. You know, not feeling super connected um, when I was growing up to my family. But um, you know, and there's a lot uh, to that that, I, that I've done personal work around. But it, but thankfully, I got support when I was in middle school and high school, and I never and didn't really develop into an addiction. But you know, I came at this from a trauma perspective. It was when I started working as a therapist, I was working with kids, like four, four to eighteen year old mm. uh, kids, and just work, doing trauma therapy with them. So when I got into this field, you know, Michael Barta was, you know, hey, I want you to come work for me, and. I don't really know anything about sex addiction. And he's like, it's just childhood trauma. It's all it is. Right. And so I got in and he taught me everything about sex addiction. And, um, you know, I had the trauma stuff and he was a great teacher and continues to kind of mentor me in that. But, um, but, uh, my wife was not necessarily because of my personal background with addiction, but she said, you know, this, this is a, you know, uh, uh, intersection of, of your history, your, your passions, your, you know, your education background. I mean, yeah, this seems like a God thing. You you really need to do it. So, yeah, so that's kind of where that came from. And my wife is really, really wise. And, and I, I tend to listen to everything that she says. I fought her for like the first two years of our marriage and then and life has gotten a lot like a lot better for me not because she's combative but because she's she's just so she's so wise and i wish i'd listened to her sooner (laughs) so where does it start for guys in this trauma-based recovery uh because obviously they're they're coming in with a a certain behavior that probably most mm-hmm. most guys are like, so we need to address this behavior. And so yeah. how how do you get them to that place to say, oh, we're doing something a little different, but the same? Yeah. I think guys that come through our program uh, for Boulder and for BAI, you know, Begin Again Institute, you know, I think they're initially surprised how little we talk about sexual behavior. Mm-hmm. Um, we we believe that addiction and, and sex addiction arises to regulate an unregulated nervous system. It's a, it's, it's a comfort. It's a self-soothing, yes. it's a, you know, a, to, a, to a way to cope with distress. And if my nervous system is trained to respond to this kind of coping, um, then that that's probably because there was distress early on in my life when my nervous system was, was forming. And, uh, so we go back to those places in their lives where they, you know, either got some bad or, or some not enough good. 
in, in that in those instances, either specific instances or like a series or or an environment that was possibly traumatic, right? And and dig through that for not just guys' triggers, but actually to do trauma work around those memories and experiences to relieve um, the pressure within their nervous system and their emotions and in their in their hearts around these. What, around is, these, what um, does trauma work uh, mean exactly? Obviously, there's, that's a huge question, but yeah, for people that haven't experienced well, that. Well, um, trauma work basically is, you know, you got to start with your understanding of what trauma is. And without getting into the weeds too much, you know, you, trauma is anything that overwhelms the, the brain's ability to process in the moment. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and it's particular to, you know, war veterans and stuff because because those are overwhelming experiences. But with kids, their brains are not developed enough. So things that are painful, uh, you know, on a on a, you know, on a spectrum. Right. Some, you know, depends on the person and what overwhelms them. You know, everybody's different. But the kids brains are not developed enough to be able to handle these painful experiences, these emotional roller coasters, abuse, neglect, you mm-hmm. know, dismissal of emotions or invalidation, all of these things that um, kids have to deal with and their brains aren't developed enough to handle it. So what happens is the brain gets overwhelmed and it restores those memories in the body in terms of sensation. It turn it stores them in the, in the brain in terms of memory um, and what we do in trauma work is we go back to those memories. We draw guys attention to those memories and allow them to almost re-experience those memories in a way that is safer for them in an environment that's safer for them and with a more developed, uh, brain so that they can process through them. So their brain is not overwhelmed. They can process through the memory and all the pain around it and stay with that memory instead of bouncing off of it and process through it. And then it can just be a memory. It doesn't have to have so much emotional charge for them. We do that in guided meditation. We do that in um, what's something we call brain spotting, which is developed mm-hmm. uh, by Dr. David Grand. He, uh, he was a EMDR guy and kind of developed brain spotting. It's kind of a cousin of EMDR if you haven't heard of that, but, you know, we, we use a number of different somatic tools as well to allow people's bodies to process through their their trauma. So that's kind of a, I don't know, uh, basic understanding of trauma treatment, I'd say. Well, let me ask you this, Matt. Um, do you th- Have you found in your experience that uh, the mindset of the typical Christian guy, the guy who's grown up in church or spent a lot of time in church and who has been trying to regulate his sexual behavior within that uh, faith framework and following the instructions of his religious community. Uh, Do those guys have different challenges uh, than guys who come from from an unchurched background? Do they think about it different? Is it—are there— obstacles or misunderstandings that you often have to overcome with Christian guys that aren't there with guys who don't come from a church background? Oh yeah. Oh, definitely. The short answer is, is absolutely, you know, the, uh, 
the long answer is um, guys in the church, they, they do experience this addiction differently on a number of levels, um, particularly around shame. Mm-hmm. And that's a good place to start. They, they tend to uh, feel the shame of not just the behavior itself, uh, which they feel like is maybe morally bad or whatever, um, but they feel the shame in a relationship with God differently than perhaps a secular guy would feel it. Mm-hmm. And part of their primary identity is someone who's created by God and created to be in a relationship with him. And they're told that sin um, disrupts that relationship. Mm. So therefore, I don't have a relationship with God and I'm calling myself a Christian and I'm going to church and maybe I'm serving in my church and all of these things. And I don't really have a relationship with God because um, God, you know, I don't really think that God likes me. You know, I think he tolerates me. I think maybe he forgives me, but I feel like maybe he's um, not happy with me. And, and, you know, and this is this is fascinating to me as I've explored this, that guys tend to project onto God the wounding that they have around their caregiver relationships. So if they if, if they felt abused, you know, or by their caregivers or were abused, um, they tend to see God as somebody who doesn't like them, who's out to get them, who's out to teach them lessons, yeah. you know, yeah. kind of moral lessons, or if they were, or to withhold happiness from them or to sabotage their life because they're bad. Or if they experienced, you know, vacancy and dismissal from their parents, they tend to see God as withdrawn and and has his back turned to them and they have to do the right rain dance and the right prayer and the right behavior to try to get God to turn around and be warm and compassionate towards them. Um, They see God as as a dismissive and um there is such a deep spiritual disruption when we project that onto god and um, god is so kind and compassionate i believe that he sees through our projections with so much compassion but it really affects their ability to be in an authentic relationship with god a safe relationship with god because because think about this if you believe that God is out to get you because of your childhood trauma, your experiences, that that's, that's what caregiver relationships are like. They're punishing, they're, mm-hmm. you know, they're harmful. Essentially, intimacy with God is dangerous. Yeah. If I get too close to him, he's going to hurt me. And if I believe that God is dismissive, then if I pursue him and he doesn't respond to me, and I am utterly and truly alone in the universe. And these are um, profound uh, emotional, psychological, you know, just disruptive things that these guys are dealing with that are different than the guys that are coming through that are outside the Christian community. So how do you deal with someone who was raised in a place that says, well, come on, that all sounds nice, but God is still a God of wrath. And you say that sin doesn't disrupt, but Isaiah says your iniquities have separated you from your God, and your sin has hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. You're just leaving out whole chunks of the Bible to have this nice, fluffy God. Like, how do you unpack that for someone that has heard that their whole life? 
What are what yeah, are some steps? It's a, a great question, you know, and I don't think that these things are mutually exclusive, that God is either wrathful or he is compassionate or either God hates sin or he is, you know, um, incarnate in our in our moment to moment struggles. You know, I don't think those things are mutually exclusive. Um, what I tend to see is that guys have a hard time dealing with addiction when it's called a sin. Um, now, it's not saying that it isn't sinful, the behavior, right? But at its core, is it a character flaw? Um, in my experience, no. These guys really do love the Lord. They love their families. They love their kids. Their behaviors do not demonstrate that. And, and people rightfully question those things. But uh, at their heart, in their heart, these guys really do see it as a bad thing. And they really don't need to be reminded that these behaviors are, are bad. They know mm-hmm. that they're bad. They know that they're bad when they're doing them. Uh, they know they're, they're, they feel bad about it when they're done. So these kinds of ways of talking about sexual compulsivity as a sin is really not helpful. It, pr- it seems to produce shame because we don't really need to work to convince them that it's sin. They already believe that. Um, and there's kind of this belief out there like, well, if we just got them to believe that it's bad enough, then they would quit. Don't you see this is bad and how damaging this is? And they're like, yeah, uh-huh, I know. And I prayed to God for 10 years to take this away from me, and he hasn't. And now I have to deal with that. I have to deal. What does that mean? Yeah. You know, somebody just asked me that today. They said, what if I've been praying for five years to get this addiction taken away and God doesn't? What does that say about God? Well, I said, you know, primarily, um, I don't think that God's goal in the universe is to um, lessen the amount of sin. I think his primary goal is to increase the amount of connection between him and his people and not to just decrease the sin. Because if he wanted to, he could snap his fingers and turn everybody into Teletubbies and there'd be no more sin, right? But his primary goal is to bring us into a deeper, more authentic relationship with him. Yeah. And the second thing is God has answered your prayer. There is treatment. There is help. There is uh, avenues for healing that he's provided. And, and, and the good, and the good news is Boulder recovery is one of them. Right. And, and we're here to, we're here to be, um, to be the, the, the answer to your prayers. You know, we believe that God, uh, has created avenues for healing from cancer treatments, you know, chemotherapy to ibuprofen mm-hmm. and, and, uh, therapy is, is one of those. So that, that leads to a, a question I had because, you know, trauma-based therapy for addiction is kind of the the newer way to approach this. In the last, I don't know, how many years, Nate, have we been running across this? Like four or five, it seems like. Well, yeah, I first four. started hearing about it 10 years ago. But yeah, it's, yeah, it's, yeah, it's, really, it's gotten traction. I think it's now generally accepted that trauma is at the root of nearly all addictive behavior. But it seems you can you can talk to some guys, and it feels more like it's uh, it's like a s- stage hypnosis show at the state fair, where some people are going to get <laughs> under the the trance. And but you know, I'm not one of those kind of people. I, I need to deal with it differently. What do you mm. say to that idea that okay, this is this is for a few of those especially sensitive guys? Yeah, man, you know. 
you know, sometimes I tell the guys in our program, wouldn't it have been great if your fathers had been through a program like this? Mm. Not, um, not necessarily, maybe for their addiction issues, maybe not, but um, just in the sense of getting to know themselves, coming into closer contact with their, uh, the wounded parts of themselves to become more authentic, more compassionate, more warm, more accepting of other people because they are under, they're, they're closer to their own wounds. And how would that have changed your childhood? And, you know, guys will just nod their heads until, until they pop off, you know, like, Oh my gosh, I wish my dad had done something like this. And this is, Oh man, this is not something for the sensitive guys. You know, what I see is that these programs are for the desperate guys, mm-hmm. not the sensitive guys, the guys who are just are sick and tired of this, of dealing with this and, and, and want desperately want to get better and have people in their lives that are banging at the door. Uh, wanting them to be in deeper relationship with them and want them to get better too. Um, what are the most yeah, it's not what a, are the most common roadblocks to desperation that you see in guys? Well, um I think felt consequences probably the biggest. You know, you got to be most and that's where we see challenges with younger guys around this addiction is that they haven't accumulated enough felt consequence and they still feel like if they want they could stop. Um, but guys, you know, in their 30s and 40s are starting to see that this behavior is not tapering off and that, you know, it, the, the old saying is, you know, what they don't know won't hurt them, you know, has really worn uh, thin and, uh, and, and shattered, in fact. And, and what I thought was something that I could just do in secret and it wasn't hurting anybody is actually hurting everybody in my life. And uh, so that's where I see the the, the 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 desperation, and you know, guys will they're tired of uh, of being tired. Their nervous systems are just out of whack for decades, and yeah. they're treating it with these extreme behaviors, and they're just exhausted. Yeah, and um, that's what I see. Yeah. Mm. Mm. Well, uh, I know that. To me, uh, the emotional work of recovery was the most daunting. I wanted mm-hmm. to be able to think my way out of this thing, yeah. <laughs> right? <laughs> uh, because, uh, I mean, to this day, I, I feel to a very large degree emotionally handicapped, if not entirely mm-hmm. incompetent. And yet, uh, I I know that you know, I am doing irrational things. You know, I have a history of doing irrational things for non-rational reasons, uh, mm-hmm. trying to solve the problem by rational means, and that doesn't work. Uh, but easing guys in, do you find that this is a challenge, easing guys into, uh, you know, out of discussion groups? Uh, out, it's uh, certainly there's a certain amount of information that you need to impart to set the stage. Uh What's it like to yeah. ease guys into the emotional work? Well, it's 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 exactly how you describe it. You know, most guys come into our program, they they say, oh, uh, trauma based treatment, oh, neurological based treatment, yeah, like, and their the and their intellectual side just goes, ooh, yeah, we'll like this. You know, we can yeah. we can get our teeth around this, and yeah, and um. Uh, 
that's so that's true and once we understand the trauma triggers that are in and you know influencing your neurobiology and um, it has everything to do with how you feel about what happened to you as a kid how you feel about your world and your environment and how you feel in response to your day-to-day life mm-hmm. and that's where guys are like oh wait i thought this was going to be kind of a you know a seminar kind of thing and, <laughs> and, and here we are you know telling them you know i want you to look at this you know hey look at billy over here on the other side of the room what's mm-hmm. going what do you see what's going on in his nervous system right now as he talks about how his father treated him and then this look comes over their face like oh, well, i don't know you know, Monday, Tuesday of the first, you know, first part of the intensive, they couldn't tell you what somebody else is feeling because they don't know what they're feeling, mm-hmm. right? I think addiction like puts us, puts our heads in a jar. You know, all we can do is is think and think about our thoughts and think about our feelings and think and think, think. And, and um, our thoughts are usually distorted and, you know, our beliefs are skew negative and we're just these heads in, in a jar and, we uh we can't really connect to our body or our emotions and so the challenge so we give these guys you know like a, a feeling wheel and oh, wow. and a lot of them don't yeah they don't like it because they're like oh I, you know i have one guy tell me like he, he picked a laminated feeling when he threw it yeah he said i know adjectives i don't need this you know <laughs> and <laughs> You said, what What uh, feeling is that while you're throwing the feeling wheel across? What, oh, you better believe that's exactly what I said. And uh, it, was, it was great. Um, yeah, now, and, and guys look at it, but really it's a guide and they, and they start to see it as such a helpful tool that they can look at it and just say, what do I feel? And I scan my body, right? And some guys will be looking at it and and they'll take a really long time and I'll just let it hang, you know, the silence out there. Yeah. And, and they'll look up and be like, I don't know. I just, I, I can't identify what it is. Like, oh man, that, that sounds really tough. And like, yeah, I'm just so frustrated. I can't get in touch <laughs> with how I'm feeling. I'm like, oh, what'd you, was that? You're what? <laughs> and, you know, so like part of the work is identifying that all of our emotions have a purpose. Right. Like there's not good and bad emotions. They just want to feel happy. And Mm -hmm. and, um, they're like, well, frustrated is an emotion, you know, numb is an emotion, you know, depressed is an emotion. And and so you're you're touching on another hard block, though, for Christians. I mean, I grew up hearing and believing that truth is objective. And I know it was meant Mm -hmm. by that. And that's true in some regards. But Mm -hmm. you're talking about how someone perceives the data of the experience of their past. That's totally subjective. It, but it is it is the reality they're going to live in. So that's pretty. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think it's hard for myself to unhinge from this. Isn't just about the data of this information. It's how I'm processing it. I have a narrative. I'm making up a story. Based on that data, and though the data is objective, the rest of the story is completely made up for better or worse. Yeah, and you're 100% right. The word narrative there is so key. When I was working with kids, traumatized kids, like four or five, six-year-old kids, they would come in and they had victims of abuse or abandonment or whatever, and they would make up these little stories like, 
I'm a bad, I'm bad, I'm bad. And that's, that's why I'm being treated this way. Or, you know, I'm not a good, I'm not nice. Or, you know, I shouldn't have cried at that, that one time, or I shouldn't have done this. And they make up these really simple little narratives to explain the way that they are, are being treated. And adults do the same thing. Um, we make up these, these little narratives to explain what is going on. I'll give you an example. So this happens all the time. A guy, a guy has an abusive father, and I've heard this story so many times. An abusive, uh, abusive dad is lying on his deathbed, and he calls his son into the room. He says, you know what, son? Uh, everything I did in our family was to make you a better man, to make you tougher, to turn you into a leader, to carry on the torch of this family name. A, right? real, and, a real boy-like and, Sue moment in his life. Yeah, yeah, right. And I, it breaks my heart every time because because it, here's this 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 you know son of a gun telling his kid and and in impressing upon him this narrative mm-hmm. that is not his story. His narrative was my dad was an alcoholic and he was abusive and he and he and he beat me in public and he beat me in private and he and everyone was terrified of him and. uh and now he's trying to package this narrative for me. And now I have to carry around this, this, this other narrative. Right. So we're trying to help guys get in touch with, well, what is, what was your story? How did you feel through that? Because it matters. You matter. Your emotions matter. How you felt that experience mattered. And you know what? Your dad's motives, wherever they may be, um, only have a little bit to say about that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, tell us about uh, the program that you've developed, the intensives especially. I think uh, some of our listeners are going to be very interested in what it is you're doing at Boulder Recovery. Yeah, so it's a two-week intensive model, so it's 14 days. Um, It's a cohort model, so all the guys will arrive at the same time and they'll all leave at the same time. And this allows us to do a couple of things. One, we get to work on serious emotional, spiritual, uh, traumatic issues with each of the guys consistently over those 14 days. So you're not like showing up at the therapist's office and then going back to work right. or whatever else, right? You're staying in the work for these two weeks. You get a lot of work done. And also you get to share the experience with a group of men that are going through uh, very, very similar experiences in their marriages, in in their addiction and their behaviors, and you get to battle with the lie that we tell ourselves that if they really knew me, they would mm-hmm. reject me. Yeah, um, and uh, you get to tell your secrets, and you get to put your stuff out there, and realize that man, these guys are not going to reject you. In fact, they're going to be closer to you. And they're going to feel safer with you. And wow, what would it be like if I took this kind of authenticity and intimacy back with me to my life? How would that change my life? And and, and what kind of momentum could I build in my recovery around this? Because we're certainly going to do all the psycho ed. We're certainly going to do all the educational pieces around, you know, addiction and neurobiology and, and, you know, relapse prevention and, you know, behavioral containment and, how to build a strong program. We're going to teach them all that stuff, right? But the core of the program is how do I get to know, uh, how do I become comfortable with my pain and, and, and know myself so that I can draw from those experiences to feel with the pain of other people in my life? Yeah. 
Which that's is, where everybody's feeling the, the most. Which sure. is going to benefit married guys as they come home. Uh, uh, speaking of which, uh, is there a component for partners? Yeah. So, so we have a partner support program for, you know, with Begin Again, we're like probably the only two uh, rehab programs that I know of. And I, you know, I, I could, I'm open to correction on this, that, that supports the, the partner while they're, the addict is in the, the treatment. Mm-hmm. And so we do 10 to 12 hours of like online support with a CSAT and APSAT trained uh, recovery coach. Um, and so they get to meet with the other uh, partners Nice. and they get to get support that way. And they get some education around the addiction and, and around healing for themselves. You know, that this process is, um, it, they're going to need to heal too, not because of anything necessarily broken with them, but the damage that they've incurred by yeah. being within the blast radius of this addiction. Wow. Wow. So what's the best way for uh, listeners to uh, reach you at Boulder Recovery? Yeah, well, boulderrecovery.com, B-O-U-L-D-E-R. Like We're located in Boulder, Colorado, so boulderrecovery.com. Um, our first, uh, uh, so w- our first one this year is going to be in June, the 19th. Okay. And so we got some seats open in that one if you guys want to come. Uh, but that's the best way. And all the information about how to contact our admissions team and learn more about kind of the day-to-day details of the program, are, it's all on the, all on the website. So. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Matt, for taking time to talk with us today. I've really enjoyed our conversation. A few of your phrases uh, I've, I've stuck in my brain, and <laughs> I'm, I know I'm gonna. I know I'm gonna keep using them. Uh, I've never heard before. I mean, what a great phrase to talk about the rain dance that we do to try to attack, mm. attract the attention of a of a God who is ignoring us. Or a spouse oh, caught man. in the yeah. blast radius of the addiction. Those are wonderful, wonderful phrases. I love what you're doing. I'm thrilled that there is this intensive using the trauma model of addiction treatment, the most effective one we know. Okay, well, listeners, stay with us. We will be back in a moment on the Pirate Monk Podcast. Podcast. It's good. I love. I love how he has a desire to uh, to bring that relational connection with God back into it. Yeah, yeah. If, I, I just thought it was fascinating that we, you know, when, when I ask him, you know, what are the impediments that you typically, you know, Christians who come to the program encounter? It all came down to just bad teaching, didn't it? Yeah. Yes. I mean, it's, it's just that God doesn't like sinners or won't be in their company or my sin is separating me from God or right. Yeah. 
And it just takes the victory, you know, death wears your sting, a grave wears your victory. Well, the sting of death is is sin. Yeah. It's, it's conquered, and now it's a plot point. It's a thing that drives me towards God if I let it. Yeah. It is an, a launch pad for the gospel to just absolutely blow everything else away. Yeah, yeah. And that's where skin, skin, skin doesn't have to be scary. We can <laughs> shave it all off and be skeletal. Uh, sin doesn't have to be as scary and -hmm. it doesn't have to be hopeless because the hopelessness has already been removed from the problem of sin. Yeah. Now it's a plot point that brings me closer to my dad. Yeah. And I have everything I need in Christ. So yeah, when you say bad teaching, I mostly just immediately think teaching where sin is as interesting as the Christ and way more interesting than the dad who sent him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that counts as bad teaching in my book. Well, we can stick with bad teaching. <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, there's this phrase that comes back to me a lot, one that uh, John Lynch used in the Heart of Man movie where he said, I, I always thought that God was mildly disgusted with me. Yeah. And that came from his church conditioning, right? And, and now to know that God... God's affection for me is never affected, never altered in any way by my failure. When we do the the Perfect Father worksheet with people, one of my favorite questions is, I'm not talking about God, but just a perfect dad. Yeah. Are they easily impressed? Is a perfect dad easily impressed with his kids? And everybody, without fail, says, of course. Mm-hmm. Your your kid does something out in the yard with a wiffle ball, and the dad's like, all right, son, good job, draws yeah. a shitty picture. That's awesome. Put it on the fridge. Yeah. You are a bad dad if you set a standard to be impressed that your kid, you know, your five-year-old needs to be doing some calculus yeah. for you to be impressed. Well, then you're a bad dad. Yeah. But then when it comes down to, do I think God is a good dad or a bad dad well do i think god is like easily impressed by me and the word impressed is usually the pothole that, yeah, right. that blows out people's tires yeah. like god's not impressed by me because he's god he could do everything better well hold on i'm pretty sure that a, a good earthly father could do that thing with the wiffle ball too that yeah. has nothing to do with a good earthly father being impressed so why yeah. is it that just because god could do it better He's not impressed by you. And if I'm looking for a stupid thing that I can do better than God yeah. so he can be impressed, well, no wonder I feel like God will never be anything more than mildly disgusted by me. Yeah. But when we allow that God loves us like any good father loves his precious little kids, but then infinitely beyond that, yes. when I accept that these little moments are totally impressive. Mm-hmm. Not because he's incapable, but because he knows everything. I mean, even those times that a guy decides not to go to his computer and click on yeah. that screen. To pause on that and be like, hey, do you think God was impressed by that? Mm-hmm. Well, no, I mean, it was what I was supposed to do anyways. Yeah, but he actually knew how hard it was. Yeah. If, if I knew one of my kids did that, mm-hmm. like that they really wanted to self-soothe, but then thought, you know what? No. I want something better. I want something deeper. I'd be like, yeah, all right, kid. Good job. Yeah. 
where is the space that I allow for God to be a good father mm. and not an abusive workaholic, rageaholic dad? Wow. 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 So wow. I, I love that he has that, that focus. Yeah, me too. Me too. It's very cool. So what do we have coming up? I mean, come on. It's almost... We got the 300th episode coming up. We do have the 300th episode. <laughs> <laughs> and you know what? It's this... You know, it's our little podcast. It's it's nothing. But we have a Heavenly Father who is he's actually like, oh, impressed. No. Yeah, he's boring the angels. He's like, <laughs> oh, listen to this. The 300th is coming up, guys. Everybody gather around. Come here. And they're like, you know, not saying that the angels like the podcast. They're not easily impressed necessarily. I don't know. They're like, God, I have to listen to this blathering on again. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> Uh, 300, man. Unbelievable. Crazy. So that's coming up. Yeah. It is almost, what's the next month that's coming up? It's almost May. I thought it was June uh, earlier today. So I've been very confused this week. But do we have plans for fall things in the works? Uh, I'll tell you what. We got a big Samson House uh, board meeting uh, tomorrow, as a matter of fact. I've been talking with Dr. Tom Mocha. It looks like we've got some road trips, some road trips, small road trips, short trips planned already or are in the planning stages uh, into South Carolina, into Florida, possibly into Texas. Yes, we are going to have a fall retreat. I haven't set the date for it, but we'll be doing that shortly. And, uh, and by the way... Uh, in Samson, you know, everybody is fully authorized, and you and I or Tom or whoever are not the only people authorized to arrange get-togethers. And as COVID fades, uh, it's my hope that more and more Samson guys are going to be get-together. I'm going to be, by the way, in uh, Denver this weekend, quick trip, going to go out there uh-huh. to do a podcast interview, and I jumped on Slack to let guys know I'm going to be there, Denver guys. Very cool. And uh, so I'll be meeting some Denver guys uh, at a steakhouse on Sunday night. You are flying to Denver for a podcast. Yeah. That's that's quite a thing. Well, it's a special guest, and it also gives me an excuse to go to Denver. Yeah. <laughs> nice. Okay, so we will be looking for updates. It, it won't be a part of the 300th episode, but no. the week after, we should know more. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I'm I'm excited. Yeah, I'm excited for things to just kind of jump forward a season. I think everybody's <laughs> been waiting for yeah. for this season to end. Let's fast forward. Yeah, yeah. Well, brother, I think that wraps it for this week. Though, uh, what's our standard close? I think I go uh, until next time. I'm Nate. And- I'm Aaron. <laughs> Maybe for the 301st episode, I'll find a new clothes. Ooh, well, that might be hard for people that have abandonment (laughs) issues that feel like you've run out on them, you know? You're bringing comfort. And maybe they will think that we are no longer their pals on the Pirate Monk Podcast. It's okay. The Pirate Monk Podcast is produced by members of the Samson Society. Send your feedback or questions to piratemonkpodcast at gmail.com. Please give us a five-star review on iTunes and share the podcast with a friend. For more information, please visit samsonsociety.com.